All right, welcome, people. This is the first episode of the Black Lift sessions. Um, bear with us. This is going to be a learning experience for us and uh, our audience as well as we try to uplift one another. Um, our objective is to educate one another on mental health issues, emotional intelligence, and just things that bring all around awareness to our culture. We consider ourselves artists uh, of many forms. We use expression of our personal experiences to help people relate to us and, and kind of use what we go through together and as individuals to uplift and, you know, teach. So, um, yes, this is episode one of Black Lift. Um, there'll be many more to come. Uh, first of all, I want to introduce myself, or second of all, that is. My name is Ibn Sharif Shakur. Um, I'm from urban America, and uh, I'm here to give my testimonies and Everything that I've gone through to use as a tool to uplift. Go ahead, Lorenzo. Yo, 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 yo. How's it going, people? This is your boy LP with Lorenzo P Photography. And I have some awesome, awesome art and photography on my website. I just had to throw that plug in there. Uh, but yeah, Blacklift is something that, uh, you know, we've created to uplift our culture, uplift everything that surrounds who we are as uh African Americans or Aborigines, as Malcolm X was said, it's just basically just you know to talk about the healing, you know, talk about trauma, talk about the PTSD. Uh, I feel like the experiences are tools to uh, to further you in your journey, and this is why sharing your testimony is important. So I'm excited about this. Uh, not only do I hope that we not only through sharing our experiences, but I hope that it helps people. I hope that it offers healing and, you know, uh, let's move on. All right. So one of the main reasons we wanted to do this podcast, why we chose to do it is, is because I felt like uh, I wanted to continue to, to be in alignment with my why, my life purpose. Why it, why it is that I'm a creator? Why is it that I'm an artist? What, what do I want to accomplish? Many people around the city know us as rappers, uh uh, photographers, uh, painters, me as an educator, but I wanted to kind of broaden the horizon and show that it didn't matter what form of expression I chose, whether it was a podcast or a platform, it will it will be used. My platform will be used to uplift and like uh, Lorenzo said, heal. Um, I want to start off by getting into uh, Something that plagues many, many, many of us, and it, it crosses all color boundaries, and that's um, anxiety. Anxiety and depression, they're married to one another. And um, I hate to, uh, you know, come off as cliche when talking about anxiety and depression, because it's like, it's everywhere now, mental health. But the difference is in our community, and when I say our community, I mean minorities, specifically blacks, and I'll say Latinos as well. Um, we don't take on mental health as seriously as other cultures. It's more taboo and, and, and looked upon and frowned upon. We're taught to kind of like just get over it, uh, suppress your feelings and deal with it, deal with things as they come. So, um... Uh, as far as anxiety and depression, I'll share that. I would say when I was about, I'm 32 now, when I was about 27, I started having panic attacks. I started having those moments where I thought I was going to die. You know, the physical symptoms, you know, your heart beating real fast, um, you sweating. I, I thought something physically was wrong with me. I went to the doctor. My blood pressure was high every time I went. 
and they you know prescribed me medicine um but i knew inside that it wasn't anything uh physical i got blood work done nothing came back out of the ordinary so i stopped taking the uh the blood pressure medication and i just started to google my symptoms and i just started to educate on myself on what i was going through and i quickly realized that it was anxiety so not even my you know my regular doctor even <clears throat> considered looking at my mental state he you know he automatically thought it was something physical and he just prescribed me blood pressure medicine um and if i would not have tried to educate myself i probably would still be on blood pr pressure medicine right now so it's it's important important to read we spend a lot of times on our phone so it's important to educate ourselves about about what it is that we go through um lorenzo uh do you have any experiences you know that you can name literal experiences and symptoms that you can remember as far as anxiety uh <clears throat> i won't say anxiety uh in particular but i do want to uh flip over to the other side which is depression i dealt with depression at such a early and fragile age you know you really don't know what you're experiencing at such a young age i was nine years old when my dad died and um i dealt with a lot of misguided anger i was always fighting i was always into things that really didn't suit me well and suit where i where i wanted to be in life uh you know i couldn't understand you know at such a young age you know, all these people in the world, how come my father died? You know, we had a good life, me, my mother, my brother, and, and, and my dad. We did everything together. We just had, you know, what seemed to be a perfect life. But when he passed away, uh, you know, we dealt with a lot. You know, we lost our place. My mom was depressed. She started to, you know, do things that really took her away from the family. And, you know, I suffered a lot. I was going to school and I was like in the days. I, I remember they put me in a program. I was attending PS22 school and they put me in a program. It was called the Rainbow Program. And it was for uh, children who lost their uh, it's funny, right? <laughs> Rainbow. <laughs> um, it was for actually students who lost their parents. It was about four or six other students who lost their uh, parents the that year, uh, which was 1995. And I'm telling you, man, I dealt with a lot. And it wasn't until I started to draw, when I started to create, it literally gave me not a, not more so an escape, but it gave me a way to express all of those things that I was going through. And it gave me a creative outlet. Um, and it also helped me to turn my pain into passion. So one of the things that destroyed me was the very same thing that built me up. And not only doing it for for uh, starting it, starting a journey back so long to see that I'm still doing it now. I know that art is healing me and it's not only important for me, but it's important for everybody else. I learned that while creating. Right. Uh, artists are typically isolated when they're creating their bodies. They bought their They are by themselves. And. You know, there's no instant gratification. But one thing I, I, I really analyzed and paid attention to, art is not for the artist. It's for everyone else. Because once you once you do whatever it is that you're creating and you put it on whatever platform it is, it's no longer yours. 
It's for everybody, yes. and that's where you receive all the ridicule. It's preach, like being preach. on a, it's like being on the chopping block. You know, that's where you receive all the all the ridicule, all of the praise, whatever it is. But it's no longer yours. And I learned uh, when I create to just give it away because it's not mine. It's just I want I want to double back on something <laughs> that you said. Um, turning your pain into passion. I think that's something that um, I try to live by, and I think something that we have to embrace. Um, a lot of times we go through things in life, as you said, like with your dad. Um, we all have some form of um, grief that we have to deal with through our childhood and even as adults. Um, I pride myself on turning my pain into passion, um, using my story to help others. But, you know, let's be realistic. Not everyone has those experiences and is fortunate enough or it doesn't align with them for them to be able to turn their pain into passion. Um, like, I'll put it as simple as this. Everyone is not Evan. Everyone is not Lorenzo. So some people, they they sit in, in their pain for years and years and years, even through from childhood through adulthood. So I think this podcast is important on... Uh, you know, just as far as letting people know that they're not the only one that ex is experiencing exactly. these things, exactly. because uh, when I went through anxiety, I thought I was going to die because I'm like, there's no way. I didn't even tell anybody at first because I thought I was the only one experiencing this. And as I started to read, I'm like, wow, everybody's going through this. And it made me it helped me cope with it and able to heal myself uh, a lot better. Um I haven't had a, a a panic attack in about four or five years, if you don't count eating edibles. <laughs> but but um, other than that, man, I, I I really appreciate what you said about your dad because it's gonna bring me into my next topic, and that's um, you know, another cliche topic. But I just happened to be watching uh, ESPN the other day, and uh, maybe we could play the clip. Post post this. Um, Jalen Rose, you know, just was casually speaking about uh, Kevin Durant and LeBron James and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And he made a reference to how uh, KD and LeBron, how they had to learn to have a killer instinct as opposed to Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan kind of being born with it. And I just feel like like in sports psychology, we're not acknowledging the cause and effect of that. Right. So you got. Kobe Bryant, whose dad, now you made me think about this because you brought up your dad and you losing your dad. And you can speak to this once I wrap this point up. Um, Kobe Bryant's dad was a professional basketball player um, overseas. So we're going to go out on a limb and say that uh, Kobe, uh, Kobe's dad, uh, Jelly Bean Bryant, what they called him, um, was a strong figure in his life. Now, let's jump to Michael Jordan. His dad, we all know the story of his dad, how he got murdered and things like that. But before his death, Jordan was really, really, really high on his father, man. He, he talked about how his father used to work in the yard. And, you know, he was a, a positive role model in his life. And that's the reason why Jordan used to stick his tongue out so much. Um, he actually took that from his father from when he was, you know, imitating him as he was working. So you talk about structure, right? You talk about structure. You talk about uh, having your dad in your life, you know, Helping build your confidence and not being timid, and you take a look at you know the homies LeBron and KD. You, we know LeBron's story about him not having his dad around. Um, and I did a little research and I learned that KD's mom was pretty much a single mother. He did know his dad, but the relationship probably wasn't the best. They did you know reconcile as he got older. But is it fair to criticize LeBron and KD for not having a you know like a killer instinct? 
and praise Jordan and Kobe, which is fine. But are we going to judge them based on the standard of two men who had their dads in their lives or the standard of the fact that they had to overcome not having a positive role model and still being able to and perform. still being able to perform? Um, I don't know where I read this, but it was said not to judge a man by where he is, but judge a man by what he had to go through to get where he is. And, um, you know, I'll take nothing from MJ and Kobe because I, I was a real big MJ fan growing up. But now, you know, as a young man who <laughs> who didn't, you know, have a, you know, a strong male role model in his life, you know, I find it much more compelling and I and I empathize with uh LeBron and KD more because they had to learn how to be men on the fly in front of the entire world. So I just want you to kind of like elaborate on how not having a dad may have affected you and you know in terms of confidence, being timid because I can relate as well, but I think you can, you know, you can elaborate on that a little bit more. So, uh, you know, after I lost my dad, um, I started to look at my situation. I started to look at all of the things that we lost. And I think that kind of was the starting point was, you know, I remember when we moved with my, my, my grandmother, basically, she was like the, the guardian angel. She told my mom, she's like, listen, I don't want you here with these boys, uh, you know, alone. And she told my mother like come move with me and I just remember throwing all of our stuff away because we didn't have room to to bring everything and that was the point where I realized I'm like wow we're we're losing everything but in the same notion that we lost everything we gained so much uh we were around more family members we were able to become close become tight-knit but with my grandmother being there to help so much uh, it took a lot of pressure off my mom so that, that allowed her to kind of drift off and do her own thing and because my mother kind of did her own thing I knew that I really couldn't depend on my mom so I became independent I had to go out and, and get things and on my this own this affects your mental and it, and it builds who you are positive and negative Just yeah, it, yeah because there, I, I look at it like this there is a dualistic nature to everything that we experience for, for every right there's a left for every up there's a down and um, although you know I became really independent right I'm, I, at like 15 I had like two three jobs you know I'm going to school I'm doing everything I'm paying for my prom I, I had money money wasn't the issue but because i became so independent i didn't know how to ask for anything because mm -hmm. i have developed a, a way to overcompensate for what i didn't have mm -hmm. but being that i overcompensated so much now when it's time to ask for something i don't know how to ask anybody because i've done things on my own for so long and believe it or not the same thing that has hurt me has helped me and the same thing that has helped me has hurt me so yeah. i know it sounds crazy but it's, it's being out of balance you yeah know? it's it's kind of balancing the the uh the energies and and basically making them coexist so that's what i learned to do man i learned how to uh to sustain and um you know um it was rough man it was rough but you know i had yeah, to but be as far as like you not having your dad around how do you think that made you like like let's you know, in, in terms of like how like LeBron and how how like that 2011 finals, how like he kind of like they say he froze up under, you know, the pressure of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. and they took away things bas basketball wise that he liked to do. But dealing with that pressure, not adjusting on the fly, um, you know, how do you think like not having your dad around 
affected you under pressure as you got older, as you transitioned into being a young man? I just felt like I didn't have that person to go to when I needed them. And also, uh, the second thing is, that's number one. Number two is, I always wonder, what would happen if my dad was here? How would things be different? So it's just the 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 wonder of it all, and uh, that's that's it. That's all I have yeah. to say in regards to that. And um, you know, just being you know men of color as a whole, I can, I'm speaking now as a, a 32, 32 year old man. Um, me and Frankie spoke about this last time I was here off off record. Shout out to Frankie Meadows. Um, yeah, man. Uh. Even now, you know, I consider us. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I am in the room. (laughs) Even as um, a man now, right? I consider myself what they what they would call a success, right? I got a bunch of student loans. I got a master's degree. Um, I got a job. I take care of my family. And I appreciate that, but now as I'm a little more wiser, we know that there's way more things to measure your success by than just what America told you to do, right? But let's just speak in terms of the quote-unquote what, what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I'm doing the right thing. Um, even now for us, with all that we go through, it's difficult out in, you know, out in America where it's more of a, uh, of course, there's white privilege. And... Um, we, I'm just thinking about everything you talked about that you've gone through, and I haven't even gone to my too yes. much into my personal yes, story. Yes, yes. But um, I was talking to Mr. Metals about this incident where, you know, I work for the uh, public school system, and uh, I went to a neighboring school system, school district, um, the county district as opposed to the city, um, a county high school, and um, I was there to handle some business, and. Uh, when I walked into the building, a Hispanic security guard stopped me. He was a brown Hispanic, cool guy. He was very, very uh, nice, very, uh, you know, cordial and respectful. And he asked me what I needed. I told him. Um, now, I remind you guys, I'm at work. So I'm not, you know, even though I got tattoos and dreads, even though that shouldn't matter, I'm dressed casually. You know what I mean? I'm not, I don't look like I'm off the street if if you want to follow those rules. Um and his supervisor, an older white guy, stopped him, stopped me, and kind of grilled me, looked me up and down, asked me what I was doing here. Um, I felt like I was being pulled over, honestly. But uh, I'm 32, so I've been through this before. Speaking about pulling over, but... I- <laughs> yeah, like the days of Bayonne back in the day. But, um, yeah, I felt really uncomfortable, um, but I, I remained professional. Uh, I did question myself. I was hesitant. I'm like, am I bugging? Like, is this dude, like, looking me up and down? He asked for my ID. Um, which is fine because I know you got to follow, follow protocol when you enter a professional, a place of business, especially with kids because safety's first. But it was the manner in which he did it. All right. So I just kind of let it go. Went through, the, went through the metal detectors, signed in. Everything was everything was dandy. Uh, I handled my business. The, the staff, other than that experience, was, was pretty nice. And as I was leaving, the Hispanic security guard apologized to me. For the way his supervisor conducted himself And I said you know what I ain't, ain't nothing wrong with my brain I'm not bugging So I sat and I thought about it I said god damn I got a master's degree Right I've been working with kids since about 2011 um, I dress casually um, I know I look a little young uh, So maybe his argument is Maybe he thought I looked too young to come in there But 
that that's beyond you know that, that that's beyond what we're trying to say here because even if he thought that i really feel like as a professional you have to conduct yourself better than that because we all have biases we all have things that we think but i believe it becomes unethical when we allow what we think to translate into how we treat other people um so I'll take it the next step. I thought about it for two days. I'm like, man, this dude apologized because he saw how rude this guy was. So I said, you know what? I'm going to send an email. I sent an email to the principal, you know, just breaking down to him how uncomfortable this guy made me feel, how embarrassed I was, how how I felt like I had to overcompensate for how I looked. Because I, quote unquote, probably in his mind, looked like a nigga in the street, even though I have a master's degree. So it goes to show you that even though, you know, we deal with so much in our childhoods, we still we still have to deal with it even when we become, quote unquote, successful. I emailed the principal with a long email, everything stating everything I just talked about and how how unprofessional it was. Of course, the principal never responded. Um, I know he got the email, though. Uh, I was fine with. With knowing that he got the email I didn't need a response Because I know he's not going to incriminate himself To confirm that what I was saying was true Because then he might have a lawsuit on his hands Because if he checked my ID Before I actually went through the metal detectors And and doesn't do that to the person that comes behind me Then we know that's discrimination That's proof But because the city is small The county is small I asked someone who worked there You know, did he know the security supervisor And he immediately started laughing and he said, oh, Ib, it was you that that happened to. Oh, so that, that was confirmation right there for me that the email had gotten to where it was supposed to go. And, you know, the birds started chirping and mouths started moving. And that was the confirmation for me that what I said probably, you know, shook, shook things behind the scenes a little bit. Chances are this, this security guard, this supervisor is probably friends with the, the principal. Has friends in high places Probably a retired cop And uh, you know I don't I don't think he's going to lose his job To probably even get re- uh, reprimanded for it But I guarantee you he'll think twice Before he looks at someone That looks at me, looks like me And treats them a certain way I felt like he needed some uh, Cultural diversity training um, Because sometimes we just We just can't control it man And um this is coming from someone who's completely modest, completely humble, honest, honest, and passive as they come when it comes to certain things. Certain things I just don't care about. So if I feel like if I speak up about something, there's probably some validity to it, you know. So I just wanted to share that with people because it it it, it really speaks to the climate. It's like 2018, and still. I, I have a situation that I want to speak upon, uh, and I'll make it really quick. So uh, I was I was driving home uh, from North Bergen. It was around 2 a.m. in the morning. Where you coming from? I was coming from North Bergen, New Jersey, and I noticed parallel to me. It was a few cars out, though. It was uh, a sheriff, right? So uh, I'm in the right lane. He's in the left lane. Now, uh, just trying to give you guys a visual. You got tents? Uh, I do. All right. They're light. They're see-through. Um, you can't be black with tents, bro. But go ahead. Okay. Uh, so he's a few cars ahead of me and I notice right now I'm driving the speed limit. I'm doing everything accordingly. I'm not running any yellow lights. I, you know, us as, as African-Americans, we, we tend to, to, to 
do things like that, like just abiding by the law so that you don't you're incur, aware. You're yeah, aware of you're, the biases. You're, exactly. Against you. So with that being said, you know, um, I'm making sure that everything, you know, all my 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 T's are crossed and my you know, I, I have everything in, in, in alignment. But anyway, to make a long story short, I noticed that uh, gradually the sheriff start to slow down. Now that already signified to me that he's gonna pull me over. So I'm like, all right, I'm still driving. I even started going slower. So now I'm, I'm even, you know, I'm at 25, but now I'm even going going even slower. He goes from driving and like a couple of cars up to now he's backing up, backing up. Next thing you know, he's behind me. So he follows me for like two blocks, and next thing you know, the lights come on and. Okay, I pulled over. I'm like, oh boy, so what's this about, right? He comes to my car, and ironically, I knew the sheriff. So um, I'm kind of like, at first, I didn't, I wasn't familiar, but then I, I recognized who it was. So he comes to my car, and he said, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, no, I don't. I said, I know you. He was like, oh, yeah, I know you too. License and registration. So I'm like, damn, like asshole moment. Yeah, we know he, what that's he was about. definitely he was definitely being one of those type of of, of sheriffs, as, so to speak. So he's like license and registration. So I give him my license and registration. He goes to his car and he comes back and he said um, he said to me, where do I know you from? Now it's really clicking. Uh, at first, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't remember exactly where, but I'm thinking about it. And I was like, I said, you don't remember me? I said, I'm a photographer. I was your photographer for your baby shower. I know who your wife is. I said, I work very closely with your wife. We do a lot of work together. And he said, he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, um, he's like, um, oh, yeah, I, I do remember you. And, you know, he goes, he goes back to his car. He comes back and he tells me, um, there's a warrant for your arrest. I said, there's no way. There's, he's like, well, that's why I pulled you over. Um, why? I, what, what I wanted to... First of all, what was his demeanor like during this whole... This his whole demeanor experience? was... was uh, it was nasty. It was, his demeanor was nasty. And, you know, he he started to turn when I told him I knew who he was. That's when his whole demeanor changed. And he kind of went from being like the asshole sheriff to, oh, wow, I do remember you. And I do remember this. And, he, you know, he looked like... I messed up. That's the look that he kind of gave me as 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 things transpired. But to make a long story short, he gave me my stuff back. He's like, "Look, just go home. You know, you're good. Don't worry about nothing." And see, this is the thing that I don't, uh, uh, and I know you have to uh, end part of the story. But just to tie the two stories together, I feel like if you're if you have uh, discriminatory behavior towards one specific person out of a group. Then you might as well discriminate against, against all. everybody. Because don't don't make an exception for me because you know I'm a photographer and I was professional. No, 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 no. Before you knew who I was, what was I in your eyes in that quick interaction? In instance, you yeah. were, I was just a a black person in North Bergen that had tents driving an Acura, and you thought that maybe. Well, did you have a warrant? I did it. You sure? Because you ain't paid. Nah, <laughs> but. If you if you if you don't accept all if you if you only accept one, then you shouldn't you shouldn't accept any. I agree. 
And uh, to wrap up the story, uh, the very next day, his wife texts me and she said, I heard about the incident. And clearly in the text, she said, my husband feels like an asshole. And she said he should because he should have never pulled you over. And that was my confirmation right there. That was that was the apology in that uh, in that instance. Uh, you know, I was uncomfortable because and I know I didn't do anything. I was completely innocent. And to answer every question, no, I didn't have a warrant. You know, my record is squeaky clean. I never been arrested, never been in jail, college educated. But they don't see those things when they when they look when they are looking at you. They are they are not able to discern is this somebody who I should be pulling over? Like they like he said, they they see a profile and immediately attack that profile. And just just so happened he attacked somebody that was his photographer. Yeah, that's, and, a, that's a lesson and from he the universe for him. And he couldn't even, he it didn't even dawn on him that I had worked with him and worked very intimately. On numerous occasions that <laughs> with, with his wife. But when his wife, uh, you know, contacted me and, and, you know, she said what she said, I knew that he felt remorseful about what he did. And I was okay with that. But what I'm not okay with is like what Eben said. Will he do that to somebody else? You know, it doesn't just end with me. It started with me, but it doesn't just end there. And, you know, depends uh, on the person. If he's, you know, let's go out on a limb and say he probably won't learn his learn his lesson because uh, the conditioning for us all is so deep in how we view people. You think about how we view ourselves within our own community. Uh, you know, the Jewish people that walk down the street every day and buy property, they're more safe in this environment than we are because the self-hate is so real. But I have this theory. We made a song called Urkel before. I have this Urkel theory that I, where I feel like if you don't fit the non-threatening uh, physical description of a black man, then you're not accepted. You know, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt if there's any at all. Uh, because if if you if you really want to be um, if I really want to be specific in particular, I would say in comparison to other people, aside from my tattoos. And my dreads. Um, I have glasses. I'm always dressed casually. Um, that's the description that you have to fit in order to be accepted uh, in white America. You you can't be you you can't come off as strong or overbearing or masculine because it's threatening. It's threat. It's too threatening. And you know what? Even then, it still might not be enough. It still might be might not be enough. So you're telling me I don't have the same freedoms to to have a tattoo sleeve because at my job, uh, one of my administrators has a tattoo sleeve. And um, I'm sure he's not viewed in the same light that I'm viewed for having a tattoo sleeve. I can guarantee you that. Um, but that Urkel theory is real. If you're not chuckling and laughing and wearing glasses and your pants aren't aren't real high and <laughs> then you're not. Ex- you're, it's, it's you're gonna have a harder time, on, especially in professional corporate America around other races because the condition is so condition conditioning is so real through media, through through everything that um, it, it's just not gonna be easy for for us as as colored men. Moving around and maneuvering. Silence. We gotta put. We gotta put that in there from from Martin. When you don't say nothing, it's clearly like silence. 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 Dragonfly. Excuse me, 
moving on to our next our next topic um being that this is the first episode i just want to really uh plant our feet in what we represent and why we do what we do um we're a little bit all over the place today but i think with time we'll 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 get better um i call us the 80s babies who survived um it's 2018 so most of us that were born in the 80s we are the ones who were born in 89 they'll be 30 in 2019 so everything is 30 years ago um we survived man we survived we 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 need a cheer for that we need some we need some claps for that we need some claps for that claps um because when you look around a lot of us you know just from our personal relationships with people they didn't make it um and when i say the 80s baby 80s babies you know what you know what it was like in the 80s um many of our fathers were incarcerated like mine was my dad went to jail jail and i think in like 88 89 he didn't come home to like 1998 um in the 80s late 80s early 90s my mother that's when she started using drugs um so a lot of us have dealt with a lot of a lot of things and um it's traumatic man it's traumatic man that that ronald reagan era where they made so much money off drugs we are the the victims of that and um and for us to be here to be able to help heal and give back to the, those who came after us and those around us because it's it's gotten even worse because you know the access to things is, is things are even more accessible now i just want to uh commend myself and commend you and others like us that came from the 80s who are now you know some of us some of us are drug babies let's be real um i'm not a drug baby thank you <laughs> what about you l <laughs> um, i was fortunate enough fortunate enough to be born in 86 and my mom was still young and she didn't you know she didn't dip and dip and dab yet so i came through the universe at the right time and i was able to you know come in as pure as i possibly can uh doesn't mean i'm perfect or anything like that but i, I am grateful that i was blessed to be able to come in without that but everyone else a lot of people weren't fortunate to have that yeah um and i just like to uh further what uh Eben said a lot of our friends that we grew up with a lot of them are dead and in, in jail man and it's sad because you know when you're young um and you see these things you don't see the actual consequence of the lifestyles at that particular moment because you're being a kid you're you're living in your child your childhood or whatever it is but you know as things progress you know like he said things became worse people went from you know fighting in school to now having guns and you know that led to you know somebody getting shot somebody getting killed and uh you know it's it's just sad man because I remember, I'll tell you this story. I remember uh, one of our teachers in seventh grade, Miss Bess. And mm, I remember Miss Bess. Too. And she said, she said, mm, she said Ms. to Bess. us, <laughs> she said to us, she said, it's sad because I see the future of a lot of these kids. And she said, it's not good. Yeah. I remember she said that. And all of those kids that she talked about were the victims of the, the trauma. They, they didn't make it they out. They didn't make it. You think about, I'm not going to say any names, we don't want to put anybody on blast, but you think about a specific person who was in that class, yep. right? He killed somebody he went to school with. So you got this dude, he's dead. They were in, probably in the same class at some they point. They were in the same class. And he's doing like 30 plus years. It's sad, man. 
And um, as far as the 80s babies, you know, you think about, let, let's go back to mental health. And I'll just tell you the effect that um, being a victim of the, of the things that happened in the 80s, what effect that had on my mental. Um, you think about depression, you think about detachment, you think about trauma. I know I can be a very detached individual at sometimes. Um, uh, what about isolated? Isolated too. Okay. Especially in the bathroom. I, I, I close the door, sit on the toilet, and isolate. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Some of my most creative uh, ideas come from the bathroom. And um, I was watching someone on the internet. And I don't feel crazy anymore. Because he said that. They asked him when he get his relaxed time because he's always on the go. He's always moving and working. Mm-hmm. He said the shower. I can see that. I was like, damn, so I'm not crazy. Yeah. Especially when you usually, when you used to growing up in small apartments. Yeah. Like you don't have a backyard or an attic or a basement. So, mm-hmm. shit, I'm going to sit on the toilet. Fuck it. So, Ed, let me ask you this question because I've been wanting to ask you this since the beginning of the session. No. And, uh, oh, oh, again, I just want to share this, right? Um... So me and this this guy, Ibn Shakur, we've been friends for over eighteen years, man. And I just think that speaks to a testimony of of you know of what can I what word can I use, man? Um, hmm. Resilience. Yeah. Right? That's that's one word. Brotherhood, uh companionship. Uh I truly feel like he is a a uh a soul brother you know it's not just a, a friend i i really feel a brotherhood and we lasted people see us now and they say wow i can't believe you guys been friends all of this time uh developing friendships and and having someone that you can relate to to get through life can can actually help you get through the obstacles that you know you don't have friend you don't have family members or father figure to help you help you with but i wanted to ask you this Ed, um how did you heal through, through your process? What, what was it that you had to do to change your situ- situation? Well, to, in order to change my mental health situation, because remember, I knew nothing about mental health. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, I had to hit rock bottom in order for me to kind of kind of heal. I had to hit the point where, like I said, when I was 27 and I started having those panic attacks, I said, what the fuck is wrong with me? I thought I was like turning into like a a, schiz- a schizophrenic or something. I was explaining to my grandmother. She was like, "You ain't cracking up on me, are you?" I I'm, like, I I'm like, but I had no idea. Um, but me hitting rock bottom, it, it made me just reevaluate everything around me. Everything that we were taught, you know, it made me question everything because I'm like, if I follow the protocol to what. I was told to do right. The I was, standard. The standard. I was told to go to college, get a family, blah blah blah, and I did all of that. Even even through the the trials and tribulations of my childhood, and I still it still wasn't clicking for me, and I still wasn't happy. So I started to focus more on doing things that made me happy, and hence why I'm here today doing this, creating, um, yeah. focusing on peace over financial things. Uh, things like that and it was a domino effect after that because uh, if I didn't hit rock bottom and have those panic attacks and things like that I don't think I would have figured it out as much as I hated that shit as much as I hated like you know heart beating heart palpitations in the middle of the night can't sleep and things like that 
I wouldn't be where I am without it. So, you know, like you said, the duality, man. So, uh, and I'm sure there's other people that can attest to it that that go through those things. And um, but you have to go, you have to go towards it. You can't go away from it. In and, order to heal. and I have to be honest. That's one of the things that I learned from you because I feel like as beings, as best friends, we mirror. Uh, things to each other things that you're strong at those are the those are the qualities that I know I need to improve on and the same thing things that I'm, I'm strong at you know those things that that can help help you and and things that you want to do or, or, or you need to be doing so you know I feel like we mirror a lot and I remember one time I asked you I said yo how do you overcome your, your problems and you said to me I remember this day vividly you said to me I go straight towards them meanwhile I used to run I used to run from my problems because I didn't I didn't have the, the, the know-how how to address them and uh, learning from you I learned to hit my problems head-on and going at them head-on I was not only it gave me control mm-hmm. it gave me the ability to see things from a, in a perspective that was above instead of a, a, a perspective where it's below so mm-hmm. now I'm no longer in a deficit I know now I see the problem I'm gonna go to it so that I can tackle it, take care of it, and move on to the next thing. Um, and you know, uh, that's the, going back to the not having a father. I didn't have a father to show me that, so, me so either, I had to learn. I had I had to learn, and um, you know, I I thank you for showing me those type of qualities because though these are life lessons. Definitely. These are life lessons. These are jewels. So uh, thank you for for sharing that, man, and, and You're helping welcome. me. That'll be. 1999 <laughs> I'm not paying your ass <laughs> Yeah But you know Just to uh, Just further I want people to understand this um, Leading up to the things Like panic attacks And things like that A lot of it Or most of it If not all Comes from suppressing things That's From just feeling like Oh my mother's on crack Let me get over it You know what I mean uh, My father's in prison Let me get over it I gotta be strong I gotta move on I don't have nowhere to go I gotta be strong I gotta move on When you never actually Acknowledge that you're sad Or you're angry Or you're hurt So that's where A lot of it comes from So you know That's something I think Many of us can speak to Uh, There's no healing That's what it comes down to and like he said, uh, Dr. Jewel, right? She said this, this, and she said it so eloquently. I wish I can quote the words exactly. But she basically said that your brain is a chemistry lab, right? And the way you feel, your brain creates the, these chemicals and it, it goes into your bloodstream. So let's say if you're feeling depressed, right? It, you, and, and you don't get any healing. It, and she, what she basically said is that you know, these things compile and they compile and they compile. And she said it gets so bad that you don't even know what the root of the problem is because all all you've been doing for all these years, think about 10 years of compiling paper. And then you try to find one paper that says that con- that congratulate congratulation paper. Now you got to go through all these stacks of paper. Right. You have to go through all these stacks of papers to find this congratulation paper. But it's been so many years of piling up. You don't even know where to go. And you have to go back to the beginning and to no fault of our own. Let's 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 be clear about that. A lot of the things we go through as a culture. I don't want to come off as insensitive or not having empathy because a lot of it is not our fault. You know, uh, you can't control what situation you're born into. You can't control who your family is. Um, So, you know, you think about the trauma that goes all the way back to slavery. But that's another conversation for another day. We're not even going to get into that. But 
we can deal with the solutions that uh, we're trying to work towards. And as you said, when you compile things over, you know, on top, on top, on top, you forget what the root problem is and you start focusing on external things. Mm-hmm. You know, my weight, um, uh, what car, uh, my living situation, my career. And you're forgetting about the things that are internal. And that's the root co- the root problem or the root, the, whatever the root cause is, is at the core. And I can guarantee anyone in this world, if you work on the core, which is not easy because there's layers of things, years and years of trauma. It takes work. It takes a lot of work. But I think that's where mental health comes into play because you you have to, you know, you have to find in yourself to go to counseling, to speak to someone because it starts there. You know, uh, mental health is serious. It's serious. You think about people and in, in families from years and years ago. I'm, I remember somebody, uh, they got into an argument, argument in my family. And it was like, well, Uncle so-and-so, he, he, he was a rapist. I'm like, what? Yeah, it comes out. It, I'm it like, out. Uh, no one, why, why didn't he go to jail? Because it was suppressed. Why didn't he, why didn't he uh, go to get rehabilitated? Um, because we, you know, we have this thing that we just throw things under the rug, especially back in the day. But I think people are, are, are awakening and um, they're treating mental health more serious, seriously. But uh, speaking of mental health and before we start to wrap up, um, I think that traveling is important as well. Yeah. Um, finding your, your pockets of peace. If you if you live in a city and you're, you're away from nature. Um, I think it's important to, to find, you know, to find those areas and pockets where you can kind of just focus on yourself and uh, find some peace, be around nature. And I remember you were talking about when we went to L.A., how much of a uh, experience that was and being around the sun, even in December. And um, as an artist, I just want you to, you know, just tell the people how traveling opened up your mind creatively and, and how, what impact that had on you, you know, going traveling to the West Coast. Okay. So two things uh, I just want to share. One, uh, getting to the healing part. Uh, I went to a speaking event and who was the speaker? Tony Robbins. It was Tony Robbins, man. And how I how I got to that speaking event is a whole nother story. I'll share it one day. But to make a long story short, I was given free tickets that was worth fifteen hundred dollars to go. Let's to be this. honest. You gave him some weed, but go ahead. <laughs> I didn't give him no weed. I'm not a drug dealer. Okay. Let's make that clear. But, you know, um, in the speaking event, it was a three-day speaking event. It was 10, 10 hours each. This, this man is incredible. I just want to speak to uh, Tony Robbins' greatness and how he's able to help people to heal and transform. And I know it was only God that led me there because I probably, like Ib said, uh, taking on situations head on, I probably wouldn't have mustered up the strength to go to say to my family or my friends, I need to go see a counselor so I can heal. But God sent these people to me to bring me where I needed to be to heal. Uh, I went to the speaking event and one of the the the, uh, the mantras and meditations that he had us to do was to close our eyes, visualize yourself in a field, right? You, and, and you're walking to your younger self, right? And it was hard to do it at first. It was really hard. It was almost like I couldn't do it. It was like, I was saying to myself, what the hell is going on? I'm trying to visualize it. And it was hard. But the more I tried, the more I started to see my younger self in this visual visualization. And what he instructed us to do was to walk up to your younger self and give them a hug and say, I'm proud of you. You made it. And that's where I healed. Yeah, because nobody hugged me. <laughs> 
I'm still trying to get it. Yo, it was one of the most incredible experience. I I I, I don't know, man. I feel like I'm about to well up right now, but that's where my healing began when I went back to the beginning. But moving on from that situation, right, we had an opportunity to go out to L.A. And I just wanted to say I wanted to go to L.A. since I was a kid. You know, you see L.A. on TV, you see the palm trees, the beaches and, you know, that that stuff just draws you in. But we went to uh, L.A., um, the city of L.A. in December of 2015 and we went to, to conduct business you know and one of the things that we did that wasn't a part of the agenda was hiking we hiked at Runyon Canyon yeah, and that was beautiful man. man listen to me I cannot tell you that that ended up being the highlight of our trip and the landscape the sun uh the the being out in the open outdoors it literally transformed me when we hiked up to the top of the the canyon uh, I just felt free. I felt as free as a bird, man. And I mean, it was you're talking about no. I mean, you're looking at buildings, but you're not around any buildings. You're not around no traffic, uh, no nothing. cars, no no immediate like pollution. And man, I'm telling you, it was like liberation at I mean, its how, core. How, do you think that opened anything up for you creatively? Did it you, definitely. What was your first painting after you came back? You remember? It was probably the shards of glass. And, and Shards of Glass is a project that I did. Uh, it basically was a, a, an artist that was broken, right? You think about glass when you break it, right? What I basically did, I took uh, broken glass and I made art out of it. And it was basically telling the idea of being broken, but you can always be whole again. No matter how broken you are, you can always be whole again. And that's the story that I wanted to articulate in my art. So coming back from LA, I brought so many jewels and gems, man. I just felt like I was much more free to create the things that will tell a story to help others. So LA really enlightened me, I, I, I want to say. And and ironically, when we when we traveled to the top of the canyon, remember, we ran into people oh, from yeah, Jersey we City. Ironically. Like, what are the chances the first time we travel out to L.A. and we run into, run into people that literally, like, live, live like, blocks away. Yeah, a yeah. few blocks I away? Ran into, I told you I ran into that guy when <laughs> Yo, we got back. Yeah. that was the weirdest thing ever. And and, and, and uh, just to remind you guys, I I am a photographer, so I brought my camera out. And hey, the yo, Frankie, charge him for that plug. <laughs> yo, I brought my camera and it. The pictures that I, I got from L.A., man, they were just incredible. But uh, just to, to, to elaborate on what Ed was saying, traveling literally unlocks Pandora Box because you are supposed to travel to connect with other parts of the world, to connect with the water, to connect with the land, with the people, with the food. Culture is experience. And you have to experience these things to become well-rounded. Think about uh, Caucasians, right? All they do is travel the world to enrich their lives. What about the ones that live in Ohio and trailer parks? You should probably travel too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, before we before we wrap up, we got this. Uh, you know, before we, I'm gonna let us do our outro. But okay. Before we do our outro, um, we got this. Uh, we got this section where we say it's called your mother. And because we <laughs> oh, because we hey, both we've been around go. each other for a long time, we just gotta say you just gotta say one one crack about each other's mother. Okay, there's nothing we never heard before. We yeah. just saying it out here, so I'll let you go first. Just um, one, just, just one, just one, just one. 
Uh, I'm probably going to call your mother Coke 45 <laughs> <laughs> because all the beer she had in, in, those, in those bags, man. I was like, damn, bro, you, you, you're you the champion. So Coke 45 is probably Okay, since you call her Coke 45, <laughs> I'll call your mother Coke 45. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let other people spell it out. All right. But, um... <laughs> The outro, man. I just want people to just understand who we are as an as an individual, and um, as an individual, I want people to know this about me. Now that I'm uh, comfortable in who I am, and if someone someone asked me just the other day to describe myself, and uh, growing up, I would say I did a pretty good job of of fitting in and uh, being comfortable. But uh, I would say now, um, I think that. Uh, I always found myself to be nerdy, but not nerdy enough for the nerds. Um, I found myself to be a little what you you know you want to call hood or ghetto, but not hood or ghetto ghetto enough for the people who just live in ignorance. Um, I found myself now calling myself just an individual who can kind of like relate relate to any and everyone on some level. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that now. And I think it's bringing me a sense of peace. Um, I've gone to counseling myself, even though I'm on my way to being a licensed therapist myself. But we ain't going to talk about that. But um, yes, I'm really at a good place. And I just hope that us sharing our experiences can um, bring that kind of peace um, to other people. To be, to be courageous enough and to be brave enough to be you and be comfortable being you. And uh, not feeling the pressure of having to live up to the standards of other people. And, um, you know, I'm just going to leave it there. And before we sign off, Black Lift, I'm going to let Lorenzo, you know, describe himself and uh, <clears throat> speak to the people who can relate to him. So uh, I just want to share this, guys. Uh, throughout my experiences in life. Throughout all of the things that I've been through, all of the things that I've seen, I witnessed, I watched, I've seen people that were stabbed, that ended up dying. I've seen people shot. I, you know, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it all, man. But um, one of the things that Describe I've, yourself, man. Uh, you know, I'm a person that 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 can fit in. I'm a person that, like, much like you said, uh, I identify with a lot of the things that that Ib said because I can be around. I can be around uh, corporate America and fit in. I can be in the hood and fit in. I'm just an individual who likes to experience. And what I do is I take those experiences and I share them, hoping to enrich other people's lives. Uh, I'm an artist. I'm a photographer. I'm a dad. You know, I'm a husband. I'm a son. You know, I'm an uncle. And I just want to be the best version of myself and I learned how to do that by being in tune with God. I, I learned that when I listen to my intuition and I listen to that moral compass that God placed in us, I, I truly believe within my heart that our heart is the compass that God instilled in instilled in us when we were created. That's that's the connection. I feel so bad. I have not said one thing about God. This <laughs> well, well, I'm gonna say it. Okay. <laughs> For listen. the record, I do believe in a higher power. So, so. God has led me to this point in my life and he led me through it by what he has given me to. Well, how do you feel about the brain and the heart? Because I'm starting to feel like the brain is the CPU. Yeah. The brain is the computer. 
as far even as far as the connecting to God, I'm starting to feel like that. Not to say that the heart holds no value because it, it definitely does, but I do. I'm starting to feel like, you know what? You're right, but I do feel like we have, as a people, have gotten confused with emotions and heart. I, I you know what I mean? You. Like it's two different things. Your heart is, I think, is your what you feel. Is it picks up that energy? You know exactly. But the emotional part as i'm getting into being emotionally aware and emotionally, emotionally intelligent yeah you got to be careful with the the emotions and the heart I'm gonna let you finish. It, it it definitely is true and i feel like what's important is the discernment knowing how to discern the difference between what you feel and what what's known and things that things of that nature but what i can tell you what i can tell you and what can what i can assure you anytime your intuition speaks to you all you have to do is listen that's it